Amen, and welcome as well. It's good. Man, it is good to worship together. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus, and I want to add my greeting to what Mike and Matt and the rest of our worship team has already said, and we want to do all that we can. We have been praying, planning, preparing to do all that we can so that every person on the second floor, third floor, first floor, or watching remotely can actually have some connection, some communion with Christ. That's what we're doing. Now, it's Palm Sunday. Historically, in our tradition, we don't make a huge deal of Palm Sunday. We don't pull out all the palm fronds and do all the processional marching in and that sort of thing, but we could to commemorate this start of the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, I want you to pause for just a moment, and I want you to actually think on that. By the time we gather again together, some 2,000-some-odd years ago, within a week's time, Jesus, the one that you're supposed to just really and truly fall in love with through the gospel accounts, will have been tortured, killed, buried, and risen again. One week. And we call it Palm Sunday because it takes us into what for 2,000 years the church has called Passion Week or Holy Week. It is the deliberate, intentional, setting aside time that generally consists of minutes and hours and declaring that it's actually moments. Taking some quantity and making the decision that it's actually quality. Now keep that in mind as you think about Jesus riding in on a colt, coming from the south out of Jericho as he approaches Jerusalem. You can do this to this day. And he crests the hill and he sees Jerusalem. And he sees the people. And it's a heart-wrenching description. Jesus weeps over them. He says that classic line, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I have sought to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks but you would not have it. What's going on there? Jesus is calling attention to the fact that these people in their default daily doings, they have a routine. They have their expectations. And by default, they lead to destruction and disaster and darkness and ultimately death. And Jesus sees this and he says, Oh, that you would understand I have come to break you free, to release you, to free you from all that faulty expectation. And these people who see him ride in on a colt, confirmed as the true Davidic king, the savior of the world, within a week's time they will nail him to a cross. Simply because they did not get their expectations met. Proverbs 4.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but that way leads to death and destruction. It seems right for all accounts. It's the right thing, but in actuality, it's wrong. Now that leads us to our big idea for this morning as we continue on in our sermon series in the book of Ephesians, where Jesus comes and he sees all these people who are walking in darkness, heading to their own doom, destruction, disaster, and death. What Jesus frees us to is our big idea, and it goes very simply like this. Walk wisely. Couldn't be simpler. Couldn't be more impossible. Walk 
wisely. We're in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read our passage for today, and then we will try to unpack it briefly, and then we'll see if we can apply it. Ephesians chapter 5, we are in verses 15 through 21. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is a debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's word. Now, we've been in a study through the book of Ephesians this entire calendar year, pretty much. We finally find ourselves in the middle of chapter 5. Since we turned the corner outside of chapter 3, we got three stacking chapters on doctrine, where it's all about the indicative, all the stuff that God has done because of what God is like, because of what God likes, which is us, the unlikable. In view of all that indicative stuff that God has done. Now we're going to see these imperatives and exhortations stacked on one another. Just boom, 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 one right after the other. Since we got into chapter four, we've been talking about a walk. Remember, in Greek philosophy, the walk is your overarching model of life. It's how you think, it's how you feel, it's how you behave, it's your attitude, it's everything. Your walk is your lifestyle. Paul's already given us four separate sections on how to walk. There was walk worthy of your call. Walk as though you are now worthy of the summons of King Jesus. Secondly, don't walk as the pagan nations do on default. They have a common sense say that says, this is how life works. Don't walk that way. It leads to destruction. Then he says, walk in love. Have a well-reasoned concern for others. Want somebody else's good above your own. And then walk as light. Spend more time emitting God's glory and grace than resisting sin. Now, finally, our fifth section on walking. It's about walking wisely. So real quickly in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. Eh, just to be a little bit geeky-greeky, this doesn't matter. It doesn't change the doctrine at all. I'm not a super fan of this translation. It's not look carefully like you really have to focus. No, no, no. It's, it's see that you walk carefully. The, the modification here is that you walk carefully. See to it. Make sure that you are walking carefully. That presupposes that it requires some diligent, intentional care. It does not happen on autopilot. Now, I don't like to hear myself say that because I really like autopilot. I'd rather just not have to think. Thinking is hard for a guy like me. No, no. Paul says, see to it that you are walking, moving around your life carefully. And then there's this wonderful little, I think Paul's borrowing from the Proverbs. We know that Paul spends at least three years in Ephesus teaching for several hours a day in the school of Tyrannus. I know, I know, I know. You think I go long. He was sweating on aprons and throwing them to the side, and he would just keep going every single day for hours. During those three years, he's planting churches, certainly in Hierapolis and Laodicea and all these other churches. But he's teaching them what? Well, he's teaching them Scripture. And almost certainly he's walking through the Proverbs, these little vignettes of wisdom from Solomon that are a thousand years old by the time Paul comes on the scene. And so Paul very intentionally adopts a Solomonic proverb scheme as he walks through Ephesians 5 here. See that you walk carefully, not as unwise, but as wise. In other words, our default proclivity is foolishness. 
I don't know if you think about your life that way. If I just get up and start going about my day, if you're not grabbing the reins, your default gravity because of your depravity is to foolishness. So see that you walk carefully as the wise. Very interesting. Verse 16. How do we do that? Well, he's going to spend some time. Now, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on verse 16 alone. We're not going to. It's just going to feel like we are. Verse 16, he says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, if Paul wanted to use the expression making the best use of or making the most of, there are plenty of Greek expressions where he could have said that. It's not exactly what he says. That is an interpretation. He uses a very precise technical term called exagorizomai. He's already used it in Galatians 3.16 and Galatians 4.5, and it's what Jesus does for us. Paul's not mincing words. When we are ex agorizomai, what it means is we are bought back from the slave market of sin. It's a very real and visceral image in Ephesus, the largest agora market or mall in the ancient world. It's three stories tall. It was enormous, and it was just covered with slaves who were conquered or who were just shanghaied from their homes. They were brought there, and they were just bought and sold as cattle. And Paul says in Galatians that that was us. We were in that slave market, hopeless, helpless, hapless, but he walks through and he picks you and me out of that slave market of sin. And he redeems us. The word, some of your older translations will say, redeem the time, ex agorizomai, buy it back from the slave market of sin. That's really fascinating. In other words, your time and mine by default is bound. That's why he says the days are evil. It's not that you're walking outside and there's vampires and that would be creepy. We could probably handle that. No, no, no. The enemy is within. The days are evil. There is a pulling down where our days are always getting pulled to where we're focusing more always by default on the temporal. And our culture and our media and all the messaging of our world is always trying to pack in stuff of the temporal so that we never have time to think of the eternal. This is why Paul says, redeem the time. As you probably know from Bible study, there are two different words for time in your Bible. There is chronos, minutes, seconds, hours, and then there's kairos, these moments of family time together, marriages, sometimes sweet, sweet gatherings, maybe even at a funeral. There are times on perhaps on travel. Those are the kairos seasons. Paul says, ex agoritomai, buy back the, 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 the minutes and the seconds and make the moments. That requires a, de a deliberate intent. It does not happen by default, just by stumbling into it. Now, our world is fiercely opposed to that sort of mentality and mindset. If you ask someone these days, hey, how are you doing? Nine out of ten times, they're going to say what? Busy. Busy has become the new self-justification. Busy has become the new thing that if I'm busy enough, I must be worth something because I'm doing a whole lot of stuff. That means I have matter and worth and significance, at least compared to all of them. How you doing? Busy. How you doing? Busy. Great. But are you actually accomplishing anything eternal? One of my heroes in the faith, Dallas Willard, says, the man or woman of God does not hurry. Now, that's convicting. You never see Jesus walking through Jerusalem going, Oh, we got to go, boys! Ever. He arrives precisely when he means to. If you and I are too busy, it's very likely because we're too lazy to do the hard work 
of filtering out the temporal stuff and making space for the eternal stuff. I know, I know, I'm talking to myself here, so save your emails. Or actually, no, please email away. That's ashley at bethelbible.com. She would love to hear your complaints. Make the most. Buy back from the slave market of sin. Your time is bound. And Jesus crests the hill on Palm Sunday and he sees it and he goes, they're bound by the temporal. I would release them into the eternal. But you and I have to walk wisely. That's what Paul's getting after here. Because the days are evil. I want you to think about where Paul's writing. He's sitting in jail in Rome. Like what a waste of time we might think. Oh no, God's using it mightily. They were in Ephesus under the shadow of the temple to Diana, one of the filthiest, grossest, most lewd places in the ancient Near East. Horrible. Buy back the time. The days are evil. And your culture, your context, your community will bombard you to fill your time with the meaningless and the temporal. You have to intentionally make use of. This is what it looks to walk as wise, not as unwise. Please understand, verse 15 continues right into verse 16. What does it look like to, to walk as wise? You can tell the mark of a maturing Christian by how they use their time. When you have a Christian friend, brother or sister, who's always just frenetic and busy, they're bound. They're not redeeming the time. One of the marks of maturity, according to Paul to the Ephesians, is proper use of time, making kairos, making moments, not just managing minutes. Well, it continues. Therefore, in the proverbial style, do not be foolish. That's our standard default. When he says, don't be foolish, we always want to study Paul's writings, all the scriptures of the New Testament, and we try to figure out what is the fallen condition? What's the thing that Paul's trying to correct? And so when Paul says, don't be foolish, he's saying that because they're foolish. It's the old idea. When you tell your kids, don't run with scissors, it's not because they're eating cake, it's because they're running with scissors. And so Paul says, don't be foolish, because that's our default tendency is to be foolish, verse 17. But understand what the will of the Lord is. He uses this wonderful word. He sort of creates this new understanding, suneity. It is take all the different streams of data and information and bring them together to make your mind the collecting pool of all the relevant data and information that Scripture has, that the community has, that the Spirit gives. Bring it all together, and you will begin to know what the will of the Lord is, in fact so much so that you don't have to ask what the will of the Lord is. You're just the walking around five foot nine, 140 pound will of the Lord in the world. It's you. You've done the hard work of bringing all these streams together and you become the walking around instance of what is God like? What does God like? So there is actually an intellectual action to understanding what the will of the Lord is. Verse 8, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now, there's a wonderful playing on words here. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Some of your translations might say dissipation. It's asotia. Literally, that's a waste. So you say, I got wasted. No, that's actually true. It's a complete waste. But Paul's using this as an illustration because what was happening in Ephesus is in the pagan gatherings, they would get together and have a whole lot of wine. And so the church apparently is beginning to bring that sort of practice in. So there's a corporate issue here, but there is a personal principle. Wine is the illustration here, but it goes for anything that is an escapism. Anything that helps you to just sort of numb the moment and get back to merely living in minutes. Maybe it's Phone screen time and games, because, I mean, you just can't play enough Candy Crush. 
Right, Joe? Yeah. Oh, maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's other substances. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's whatever it might be. Don't be controlled, led, guided by that stuff. But instead, he continues on, verse 18, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be a waste, don't be wasted, but be filled. And it's this crazy, strange little verb tense. It's the passive middle voice, like be filled by somebody else. Like you have to essentially submit and surrender so that God can do what he wants to do. You have to be filled. But this is not some momentary burst of superpower that you can accomplish something miraculous or ecstatic. That's not what being filled with the Spirit is. You and I are eternally indwelled and sealed by God's Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion, boom, full. We could not possibly have any more of God than we do right now. The question is always, does he have all of us? And so we persistently relent and we resign ourselves and we wave the white flag and we surrender all of me, all of me. We answer increasingly like Abraham in the Old Testament, Abram, here I am, all of me. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Now, what we have to also understand is Paul's doing something so brilliant that it could only be inspired by the Spirit of God. He's already used this verb, be filled, twice before. In chapter 3, verse 19, he has said that you would be filled with the fullness of God the Father. Now, that's incredible. Like, that's an impossibility. But that's Paul's prayer for these people in Ephesians, that you would be filled with the fullness of God the Father. Then in chapter 4, verse 10, he says that you would be filled by Christ. He is the energy. He is the source and the sphere of all of the giftings to the people in the church, that you would be filled with the Father, that you would be filled by the Son. And then finally here, the great culmination in chapter 5, verse 18, is that you would be filled by Christ in the Spirit so that you would have the fullness of God the Father. Like, this is what God's doing. This is what his plan is. This is his will. And so you and I have to but wave the white flag and say, yes, yes, buy my time back out of the slave market of sin. Make me matter. But it's not that you have to try harder or be better or do more. No, 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 no. It's right thinking, right feeling, right relating to one another. We are filled with the Spirit. And what is the filling of the Spirit always accomplished? It's used about nine, maybe ten times in the New Testament. It's not having this ecstatic thing where you flop around and do holy aerobics. It has nothing to do with this usage. Being filled with the Spirit every time, all the time, has to do with proclaiming the gospel. So, so don't make yourself a waste where you're disqualified or unable to actually be led and guided by the Spirit. No, don't be controlled by spirits, you might say. Be filled with the Spirit so that you can proclaim, declare the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. That's how we are maturing Christians, buying back the time, making moments in which we can give the gospel. I'm not saying you have to stand on a soapbox or a milk crate on the corner. Maybe. Maybe you're just over a cinnamon roll. Maybe it's at night sitting in front of a fireplace, around a campfire. I don't know. But be filled with the Spirit. Always head on a swivel, waiting for opportunities where you can give the gospel. Verse 19 addressing one another, so, so great here, engaging one another, uh, interacting with one another, having dialogue and discourse with one another here in verse 19, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, there's a parallel passage that Paul does the exact same thing in Colossians 3.16. So apparently, this mattered massively to Paul. 
I hear people oftentimes say, listen, that stuff in the church with the music, yeah, 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 get past that. Let's get to the word. Oh, not if you're an apostle. No, Paul cared intensely about this. The book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, that was the inspired hymn book of Israel. And we're supposed to hear this as we think of the Psalms of Ascent as the nation of Israel would recount these things together in Hebrew and they would ascend Temple Mount talking of the goodness and the glories and the greatness and the covenant-keeping kindness of God in unison as they harmonized with one another. What would it sound like? Oh, I'll tell you. I got to hear it just a minute ago. It's glorious. Paul says, address one another. With what? Well, specifically in Psalms, that is actually using the Psalter, the the Psalms that talk of the goodness, the sovereignty, the glory, the covenant-keeping kindness and mercy and compassion of God. We use those to encourage one another in worship, and Matt does a marvelous job of using Psalms all the time. But then, here's what's really fascinating. With Psalms and hymns. Now, this is why we love to do some old hymns here at Bethel Downtown occasionally, because this is the the synthesized doctrine, the systematic theology, you might say, where we've worked it out, we've suneite, we've gathered all the streams of information, and we've said, hey, this is what that means. All creatures of our God and King, or what a mighty fortress is our God, or amazing grace, perhaps you've heard of it. That is a systematic theology, a doctrinal discourse put to song, and it's good. And then there's a third category, Spiritual songs. So we have scripture, we have systematic theology and doctrine, sort of hymns, and we have spiritual songs. Now, I hear different people in different generations, not making eye contact, that'll have a preference for one over the other. Spiritual songs is essentially just a vertical praise, telling of the excellencies of who God is and what he's done. And sometimes it gets a little repetitious. Sometimes, and some people go, I don't like that at all. I've got to have the whole, like, the the, the stanzas, and i got to skip the third verse, and the whole, okay, well, it's all in there. We do it all together, because that's how we become us, and not a whole bunch of me's out there. Our worship matters massively. I get to hear you. I get to see you agreeing with me. My children get to see people twice their age, or four times their age, agreeing with them theologically and in praise, and it builds the body. Let me say this as delicately yet directly as I can. It's really hard to do that if you're just choosing to stay home and watch it on a screen all by yourself. I get it. There's a lot of us that are still, it is impossible to return in the real and in person yet. I get that. Please hear me. We get that. We know that. But if you're just staying home because, meh, Let me say as powerfully and pastorally as I can, you are denying the blood-bought right of everybody else here to hear and see you. It's above your pay grade. You were bought by the blood of the lamb and to simply go, meh. No, no, no. Make the most, redeem the time because the days are evil. I know there's a gravity. I know there's a mehness, but plan on it that this would be the time that above all else in your week is the non-negotiable. I will chew your face off to come to church on Sunday. That's not hyperbole. I'll do it. You get in front of me on Broadway, we're going to have fisticuffs because this is where the people of God are. 
the ones for whom Jesus crested out of Jericho and goes, my God, my God, I will not forsake them. So I don't want to either. You may not recognize that was a shameless plug for Easter is next weekend. Looking forward to seeing you all. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. I'm so glad there's not an actual tuner in this passage because I, with your hearts, oh, praise God, because if it was actually up to my vocal cords, eh, God would not be glorified. No, no, making melody in our hearts, but harmony together, it requires all of us with our heart. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. See, it's been said that gratitude, and I love this because I said it, gratitude is the greatest of all spiritual gifts. It is gratitude that we as a species lack most. We have a tendency to observe all the things that we don't have that we think we should and then shake our fists in frustration when we don't get more. As opposed to intentionally, deliberately adopting a posture and a pose and even a season of time in which we give thanks. See, gratitude is what produces humility. I hear too many times Christians go, oh, I'm working on my humility. Stop that. Because worst case scenario is you get there and then you brag about how humble you are and then you'll write books about it, humility and how I achieved it. No, no, that's, that's not how you, you don't make humility. God produces humility in you through your spirit, an intentional reigning in of gratitude. Be thankful. Give thanks always and for everything. For everything? What does that leave out? The good stuff, the bad stuff, and everything in between. Yeah. We thank God for every conceivable outcome of whatever we're experiencing so that no matter what happens, we won't be surprised and he'll get the glory. Remember Paul sitting in jail when he writes this? This Roman soldier's got to be going, you're thankful for this? Like, I, I get off in 45 minutes. I'm going to have a Twix. You're still going to be chained here. Paul's thankful. This guy's miserable. That's instructive. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do that? How do we give thanks? The sentence continues. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word submitting, it's hupatasso. It's a military term. It means line up and do your role dutifully because of the greater good, the overarching mission. Now, in Greco-Roman culture 2,000 years ago, submission was the most detestable of all traits. Only slaves and servants did that. It was the distinctive differentiator of the early churches that they would submit willingly, joyfully to one another, and the rest of the world could not believe it. They'd never seen anything like it, but not because they were trying harder to be more submissive. It's because they considered Christ and him coming over that hill, weeping, buying them from the slave market of sin and saying, in view of that mercy, I will submit to you, even if I don't like you. Because Jesus is worth that. We are to walk wisely. How do we apply this to our lives and get very, very practical? I'm going to do this very quickly. Four quick implications to help us how to walk wisely. Number one, when we talk about walking wisely, we need to know what wisdom is. Wisdom is seeing the world through God's eyes. Not through our own, not through the world's. Seeing the world through God's eyes. In another epistle, in Romans chapter 11, Paul says that he does not want the church in Rome to be wise in their own eyes, which is a way of saying 
Stop it. You're being wise in your own eyes. Stop that. It's bad for you. Don't do that. It's a default way we come into this world and then we're bombarded by this collection of messages and all sorts of other signs and things that tell us that this is how we are to use our time, how we're supposed to spend our resources, how we're supposed to interact, but it is almost certainly not what is best for us. Instead, we want to see the world and those in it through God's eyes, knowing what he knows, taking all these streams of what he's revealed to us, knowing what he knows, produces in us a wanting what he wants. It's feeling strongly about what he feels strongly about. In other words, it's proper perspective, keeping everything in the right perspective like his. Now that has to have, that requires humility to concede that I might not be right about some things. In fact, I'm almost certainly wrong about some things that I hold dear. Did you know that you are too? And he probably knows what they are and isn't telling you. And she probably knows and isn't telling you. All of us are almost certainly wrong about some things that we hold dear. And so walking wisely, seeing the world through God's eyes and maintaining the constant question, how would Jesus walk around in my life if he was living his life through me? Because he actually is Christian. It's you, Christed, all over the planet by the millions and the millions and the millions. Number two, when we talk about walking wisely, very practically, take the next wise step. But I don't know what I'm going to do in 20 years. I don't know what I'm going to do in 20 hours. Just figure out what you're going to do in the next 20 seconds. Take the next wise step. Sometimes the previous point, I get it. It might be too high and lofty to try to see the world through God's eyes. And so fine, for now, you just start, take the first and next wise step. Maybe you've gotten yourself into a situation, been there, which all of your options are hard and painful and bad. Take the next wise step. Even if it's hard, when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Take the next wise step. This is not a get out of problem free card. It's not. But what it is saying is, God, I don't know what else to do. I'm trusting you. I'm going to take the next wise step. We don't have to know the process for the entirety of our journey. We just trust that God is the only one who actually has that perspective completely. I know that sometimes it feels like there's no way out, but that is completely false. 1 Corinthians 10 says, God has provided escape. He will never allow you to be in a situation in which your only recourse is to sin. Now think about that. That's sovereignty. You are always, 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 because of God's sovereignty, able to take the next wise step. Now that's on us. Walking wisely sort of brings this spiritual muscle memory. It starts the positive momentum in which it increasingly becomes who we are and what we are to do until we don't, and then there's grace for that too, and we start all over again. But increasingly, we say this all the time around here, what we ought to do simply becomes synonymous with what we want to do. That starts by taking the first or the next wise step. Thirdly, worship is wise. It's the best thing. Worship is actually wise. I've heard it before. I'm sure you have too. Church is blah. I've done it. I get it. On with the singing. What are they going to do next? Have puppets? Blah, blah, blah. I get church. Oh, no, that's a gross misunderstanding about what's happening in the church, whether or not we like the particular style of music or the preaching. And I happen to love both, just for the record. 
Our gathering together as we are filled by the Spirit is literally, have you ever thought about this? It's literally the best idea God could come up with. Yeah, but why don't we, why don't we, what? I don't know, ask God. He's the one that says address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and preach the word. This is literally the best idea God could come up with in this age. There will come a time when there will be no more preaching. <laughs> but that thing today. No, no, no. You know what's going to last and last and last is music. It's wise. We say this all the time. What we do here with one another matters massively. Our worship informs our theology. Our theology informs our worship, which informs our theology, which informs our worship, which informs our theology. Do you get what I'm doing here? This builds us. What we believe makes us who we are. Notice the plurality there, because all through your Old Testament, hallelujah, halal, Yahweh is always plural. It's what we do together. Can you praise God by yourself? Yes, of course, and you should and you must. But this is a group project, and it's wise. It's what God says is very best for us. To abstain from worship for any other reason other than that which is vital is essentially telling God that you have a better idea for how to worship him than what he has prescribed repeatedly in his word. And that would be, oh, what's the word? Unwise. Point four. We all have a ministry of interruption. I know we're all very busy and important. But sometimes we're so busy and important trying to manage our minutes that we miss the moments. Always be ready for the ministry of interruption. If we're always too busy with the temporal stuff that the eternal moments can't happen, then there's a high degree of likelihood that we're not really being used in a kingdom sense. And so we never really have fulfillment or peace. Pay very close attention to the people who just somehow seem to interrupt you right when you're trying to get that super important but not really important thing done. Pay attention to the companions God brings along your journey. For those of you younger than me, I direct your attention to the Pixar movie Up. Great theology. You might remember that Carl has no interest in a companion, but it is little Russell that redeems him. For those of you that are older than me, I direct your attention to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Same story. Naomi has no interest, no need for Ruth, but it is Ruth, this Moabitess, who continues to interrupt her and ends up being the instrument of her life and redemption. Pay attention to these people who just seem to come across your path that aren't a part of your plan. Praise God, you're not him. Be aware for the moments of interruption Lay down your pen, put away your phone, and engage. There's a high degree of likelihood that that is a moment, not merely a bundle of minutes. Those encounters redeem moments from being just minutes. So watch and wait and walk wisely. It's Holy Week. Make the most of the time. Buy it back from its default ruin. This is the week where I pray we can all pause, we can all reflect on what Jesus did as he walked through that last week of his earthly ministry. It's really interesting. He knew he was going to the cross. And as horrible as all that physical was going to be, it was the realization that he was for the first time in all eternity going to have fractured fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. And with all of that important deadline literally coming before him. You know what Jesus still does? 
This is crazy. Read your Gospels. You're thinking, surely he's like, you know, I don't know, replanting the rainforest in Brazil. He's uh, saddling the angel. No, no, no. He's eating with sinners and tax collectors. I don't know what you've got going on, but I'm pretty sure the redemption of all humankind is not on your calendar. You and I can make time. We've all got the same 24 hours and all the same minutes and seconds, but we all have the capacity to stretch those moments to make them mean something, just like Jesus did. So let's walk wisely as he did. I want to remind you, this coming weekend is Easter weekend. On Friday evening, up on the third floor, we'll be gathering for our Good Friday service. We'll take communion together at 6 p.m., Then on Sunday morning, we'll gather at 7 a.m. in the coffee garden, and we will proclaim that he is risen, and then we'll have breakfast tacos, because that's just how you do it in East Texas, is say he's risen, and then we have bacon and egg and cheese. It's just kind of how it works. And at 8.30, we'll have our first service on the third floor only at 10 o'clock, typical service, all three floors. Please plan on being here. Again, we understand if you can't be here for any reason, we still would love for you to join us remotely. For now, let me pray for us and commission us all to... Walk wisely. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this moment (laughs) where you are present by your spirit among your people as we have seen your plan and your word. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who's trying to muddle through life to do their best, Father, would you give them by grace the gift of faith that they would believe, that they would transfer all of the weight of their being off of themselves and onto you that they would step out of death into life, out of darkness into light, that they would be your son or daughter. May salvation come to this house. If that's you, that for the first time you think, yes, I actually see this, I believe this, we would love to talk with you about this. Please catch one of our staff members, an elder or deacon, someone else you know and love and trust. For the rest of us, Father, would you help us to buy back the depraved minutes of our days and make moments for kingdom work because you, Lord Jesus, are worth that. We pray all this the only way we can in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.